Hey everyone, this is Tam. I just wanted to thank you for your patience with the recent delays in putting snowfalls out. As we said before, my family got COVID and we were very sick, but my son got the brunt of it. We both returned to work thinking that we had put it all behind us, but then he fell ill again, landed up in the hospital with some serious heart problems, which is really weird because he's only 26 years old. He's better and is being monitored, but COVID has really taken a toll on us, and we just wanted to thank you for your continued support in getting Jamie's story out there and listening to Jamie's story. I also wanted to thank Bruce and Leslie for all their support. And Leslie, thank you so much for sending the pulse oximeter. That was so kind. And between me and Bo... We put it to great use. Also, Jamie wanted to do a really quick shout out before we get started. I want to give a quick shout out to Kathleen Buchanan for joining us uh, in this this fight and the struggle and, and becoming a, a patron partner. We really appreciate you and, and uh, we are so grateful to have you as a part of this. And I want to say one last thing to my friend Ellen. Tammy said she was going to send me some pictures of your uh, your new uh, free Jamie Snow gear. I can't wait to see it. I miss you guys, and, and I really appreciate you know everything that that, that all of you do uh, to support me and, and and keep me going in this struggle. Injustice Anywhere presents Snowfire. The wrongful conviction of Jamie Snow and how they got away with it. Snow Files, Episode 19. Jamie Takes the Stand. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. In this next segment, we will begin to dive into the questions and witnesses from Jamie's perspective. In episode 19, part 2, we are focusing on Jamie's rebuttal to the witnesses who testified against him, starting with Ed Palumbo. Ed Palumbo testified that Jamie confessed to him when they were passing in cars, each traveling in the opposite direction and briefly stopped at an intersection on Olive Street. Palumbo testified that Jamie said, Did you read about me in the paper? Then said, Boom, boom, gun goes off, kid dies. Palumbo has since recanted his testimony. You can listen to Episode 7 for the full story of Ed Palumbo. When asked if you bragged to Ed Palumbo... Uh, in the car by saying boom boom gun goes off kid dies you said it never happened he kept asking you that the objection was asked and answered and then you said I did not brag to Ed Palumbo Ed Palumbo was real good friends with Rick Barkas he would have been the last person in the world and my question was did you know Ed Palumbo had a relationship with Barkas at the time of the crime yeah 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 I mean he had his relationship, if you want to call that, wasn't with Barkus as much as it was with Barkus's wife. And everybody knew that. I mean, I knew it. The people that knew Ed knew that, you know, he was, you know, he had this 
relationship going on with Marcus's wife. So in regards to Palumbo, Tammy testified that they did do the drive-by with the car and that that you asked if she if he was going to read about Palumbo in the paper. And she said that really was all that there was to it. I, I can't imagine having this long conversation at that intersection in the first place. It was during the middle of the day. There were cars, uh, you know, there were cars going in, you know, in both directions. So it was just maybe 15 seconds. That was it. And really, you know, I mean, I, I had asked him, I had said something along the lines of, you know, I, I read about you in the paper because I knew that him and, and somebody else was out doing some stuff. And so, you know, what I said to him was, I read about you in the paper, talking about him, you know, when he decided to uh, make up his story. I mean, that's that's what he said. So, but it was, you know, it was actually me telling him, you know, I read about you in the paper. The Reverend Bill Gaddis testified that either on the night of the crime or the next night, he went over to Denny Hendrick's apartment to see his brother, Garen Bradford, and that Denny Hendricks, Frank Turner, David Shepherson, Jamie Snow, Bobby Hendricks, and a guy named Mike were all in the back bedroom crying, and Gaddis asked, who died? To which Frankie Turner responded, Jamie shot the boy at the gas station, and that Jamie just bowed his head and didn't say anything. They called it a confession of omission. Several friends and family members of Gaddis state that he was a known liar, and his story is disputed by everyone that was allegedly in attendance for this event, and it was never corroborated by anyone. You can listen to episode 16 for the full story of Bill Gaddis. You testified that you went to Denny's house on Lee and Market Street quite a few times. And when Bernard asked you if you knew the people who were supposedly at the house, you stated you knew Bobby and Todd Hendricks, Garen Bradford, and Frankie Turner, but never had met David Shepperson or the Reverend Bill Gaddis in your life. I mean, is there anything that you could have done to contradict that assertion? No, I, I mean, I, I don't know how I <laughs> proved that I, I, I didn't know somebody. I mean, I... I just, I never knew him. I mean, if, if, if I knew Dave Shepherdson, I would I would say, yeah, I knew Dave Shepherdson, you know, but I, I didn't know Dave Shepherdson and I didn't know uh, Bill Gaddis. And I'm sure that there were lots of people that went over to Denny's house, you know, that apartment that I didn't know. I mean, I went over there a few times, but I mean, I, I, it wasn't like I, it was a regular hangout place for me, you know. I'm sure there were many, many, many people that, went through there that I didn't know and had no points with. It wasn't just Bill Gaddis and Dave Shepherdson. I would imagine there were a bunch of people. Randy Howard testified that Jamie called him to pick him up at the bus station the day after the crime and stated, Man, bro, I fucked up. I shot the kid. Even though Jamie didn't even have a car or a phone at the time, Howard testified that he had known Jamie for years, but Jamie refuted that assertion. Howard has since recanted his testimony. You can listen to episode 9 for the full story of Randy Howard. So is there anything in particular you recall about the testimony regarding Randy Howard? It seems to be kind of the same scenario. No, I mean, the thing about Randy was, 
The way they characterized him, you know, like he grew up with me and he was my, you know, my lifelong friend and all this stuff, you know, I mean, it, it, that's, that's not how it was. I mean, Randy was, uh, he was a little kid back at the time that he, he lived in the same neighborhood that I did. He was a little kid, you know, so we, we didn't hang out. They were trying to portray him like he was, you know, this lifelong friend of mine. And I had tried to get Pat and Frank to dig up the evidence that showed that he lived with his grandma, I think. I don't think he lived with his mom. I think he lived with his grandma. She had gotten to the point where she was unable to take care of him. And DCFS came in and, and took him, and he left the neighborhood. And I didn't see Randy again for probably a dozen years. And I also knew prior to trial that he was saying that he had called me on the phone, and I had went and picked him up at the bus station, and, and, and all this stuff, you know. And, and again, I had told Pat and Frank that, you know, look, we didn't have a phone. He could have never have called me on the, the phone to come and pick him up at the bus station because we did not have a phone. So at the very beginning of the story that he was telling, had they have just done some some minor investigative work, they could have started chipping away at the, the believability of, of his story in the first place, you know. And that was one of the reasons, I mean, I, I had to testify was that, you know, they had botched it so bad that at that point was my word against Randy's, but had they have done their job, they would have been able to impeach Randy when they had him on the stand. But in fact, you know, how, how did you call him on the phone if he didn't, you know, have a phone? And I, I'll say this now, and I'll probably say it a, a, a dozen more times, you know, for every single one of these witnesses, there was either other witnesses or other information and records that would have impeached their testimony. I mean, that's the problem with someone who's making up a story. You don't realize, I'm sure Randy was telling his story, oh, uh, you know, he, I called him and he came and picked me up at the bus station. I, I'm, I'm, you know, this story was coming in at what, 1999? So at that point, you know, everybody's got cell phones or whatever, you know, and, and uh, so he probably never even imagined 10 years earlier, you know, we didn't have a phone. So, I mean, his, his story began to fall apart from the very beginning. That was just one of the things that stuck out to me. And I mean, you know, there was really nothing I could, I could say about it. It was my word against his. Dawn Roberts testified that she was living in the trailer park and Jamie poured out a beer at a party and gave a toast to Billy and also that Jamie asked her to take down all of the composites around town and bring them to him. We did not do an episode on Dawn Roberts, but she has since recanted her testimony. Dawn Roberts. And this is where we go into the composites. It says, and do you recall him asking if there were ever, during that time frame, a number of those composites sitting on your kitchen table? And you answered no. Is that also a correct statement? And you said that's correct. And do you recall him asking, did Don Roberts ever bring you a copy of the composites? And you said, I don't believe so. Was that your testimony on direct examination? And they go on to talk about the kitchen table. And you said, Don Roberts never brought me a composite drawing. No one ever brought me a composite drawing. They were up all over town. If I really wanted one, I could have gotten one myself. 
We didn't do an episode on Dawn Roberts, but just to quickly review, she testified that she met you towards the end of 1992, which is interesting because you didn't live in Bloomington at that time. And she stated you were living in Southgate Estates at that time. Uh, Roberts testified about having a conversation in the kitchen of your trailer with Bill Morris, Mark McGowan, and Tammy Snow present, where you asked her to take composites down. She stated that she did and brought them back to you, and there were other flyers of the composite on the kitchen table. The other significant testimony from Roberts was that you, Mark McGowan, and a neighbor from across the street and several other people in the yard were, were in the yard and you had poured out a beer and made a toast to Billy Little. Now, she would have been about 16 years old at the time. And in Tammy's testimony, Tammy Snow, your wife, also testified that there were no composites on the kitchen table at any time. So, do you want to speak to that testimony? Dawn was pretty much in the same vein as everybody else, you know. She, her original statement should have been used to impeach her. I mean, when she first came up with her story, you know, she was saying that she had, you know, the, the crime happened uh, in the fall and this was the spring, so it hadn't been very long at all. So she was implying that it was 1992, right? And like you said, we didn't even live in Illinois in 1992, so that couldn't have happened. When she was testifying that we were pouring beer out, toasting Bill Little, and you know she was coming to the house, and we were having these parties at the house, and all these people were over there. That was why I had put Tina McCorder and Scott Rose was the, the guy that lived across the street, and Billy Morris, and you know Mark McCown, all these people that you know she said were present when all these things were going on. You know I put them on the witness list specifically so that they could come in and testify that those things never happened. I put my father and my mother-in-law down on, on the witness list because when she testified that all these things were going on, my wife and my kids, we all lived with my in-laws, my mother and my father-in-law. And if you knew my father-in-law, you know, these parties and all these people that she was talking about being at the house, just that wasn't happening. You know, and, and as you now know, and, and what people literally probably don't know, is, is Dawn has, uh, you know, given us an affidavit recanting all of that. And just real quick, we heard through the grapevine, which I I really don't like to listen too much to the grapevine in, in Bloomington, but um, people were talking that Dawn has, had testified in an effort to get her brother, who was in prison at the time, out on uh, house arrest. So I had somebody look it up. His name was Kelly Roberts. And right after she testified, he was actually released from IDOC on house arrest. So in this case, when it comes to deals and, and wheeling and dealing and, and people getting things, where there's smoke, there's, there's probably fire. So she did specifically say in her testimony that she met you towards the end of 1992 and stated that you were yeah. living in Southgate Estates. Because it, so none of this could have happened during that time no. because you weren't there. No, we weren't even we weren't even in the state of Illinois at the end of 1992. So convicted rapist 
Bill Moffat testified that Jamie confessed to him while they spent one night in a cell together while being transferred from McLean County Jail to Joliet. Moffat's story grew over time until it matched the state's theory. You can listen to episode 10 for the full story of Bill Moffat. Bill Moffat, you testified that you did not offer him to go stay with your sister in Missouri if he ever needed a place to hide out and that you never bragged to Moffat about the crime and didn't make any references to him about smoking crack, smoking a pipe, or needed, needing money. Is there anything particular about his testimony that you wanted to share? First off, you know, if you knew my sister, I wouldn't be sending a total stranger down to her house. I mean, it's, it's just asinine to believe that. And one of the things that Moffat said in his testimony or in his statements was that we actually were, we were out and, and we needed some money and we had pulled into that gas station to get gas. As we were getting gas, you know, that's when we decided to rob the gas station. That's a complete contradiction to everybody else that testified. But, I mean, again, you know, Moffat's statements you know, should have been used because his, his, his statements, his original statements, everything that he, everything that he said in his original statement to the police, none of the details that he ended up testifying to years later, he didn't say any of it. You know, and he was just another person who, you know, I was telling Frank Pitzel, ask this dude to give us some names since he'd known me for all these years and he'd seen me around town, give us some names of some people that we could go out and get him to come in and, and testify that he'd ever seen me anywhere on the face of the earth, you know? And I, I think um, Steve Skelton did a really good job of cross-examining him because he got him to say that he couldn't write a letter because he, you know, and tell anybody this, this story because he didn't, he didn't have, you know, money for write-outs and, and, and he couldn't make a phone call and, you know, he never saw a guard and, you know, he was in in Joliet at the time for like, I don't know, like 60 or 80 days. So, you know, that's why I put, uh, you know, a correctional officer that I knew uh, that was in Joliet at the time named uh, Michael Butchkowski. I put him down as, as a witness because he could have came in and testified that everybody was able to send out three free letters every week. If you didn't have any money, you got to send out three free letters. Everybody had access to the phones. And uh, the only way you could go uh, a day without seeing a guard is if you were if you were blind. You know, they they come around and they do count three times a day, and and that's why Butchkowski was on the list was to come in and testify to those things. Had had they used Butchkowski, and believe it or not, Frank Pitzel told me that you know they checked with IDOC and Butchkowski no longer worked for IDOC. Fast forward, I'm convicted. I get here to Stateville. They put me in a, a, a cell house in, in orientation. One of the first guards I see is Butchkowski. I call him over to my cell and I'm like, "Did you quit and come back, or you know, have you, you know, what's what's going?" On? He says, "You know, what are you talking about? I've you know, I've been working for IDOC all this time." So they didn't even try to reach out to Butchkowski. Had they reached out to Butchkowski, they could have put him on the scene. He could have testified things and it wouldn't have just been my word against Moffat. What's interesting to me about Bill Moffat's testimony is when the state was cross-examining you 
They didn't bring up any of that. They only brought up Sister with Missouri so they could bring up, in my opinion, so they could bring up Hiding Out. And they brought up references to smoking crack and bragging. Those are the three themes within, it seems to me, that just run through this testimony. They're always bringing that up. Let, let me point out one thing, though, right? They never did put one person on the stand that ever testified that I smoked crack with them. Not one. You know, they could get these people to testify to all this other stuff. You would think uh, they would have been able to get one person to testify that, you know, I was this drug user, and they weren't able to do it. Because it was a lie. Ronnie Wright testified that Jamie confessed to him while Jamie was awaiting trial in county jail. He has since recanted, stating that he and Jamie got into a fight over a game of dominoes and that he was kicked out of the pod. Wright stated in his affidavit that he was just trying to get back at Jamie for getting him kicked out of the pod. We did not do a full episode on Ronnie Wright, but he contacted Tammy Snow, stating he was riddled with guilt over falsely testifying and wanted to make things right. That's when he recanted. His affidavit stated that everything he said on the stand was a lie. So you never told Ronnie Wright to avoid talking about smoking crack in Florida because the police might think that it has something to do with the robbery and murder of Bill Riddle. What was that like? No. That question was weird. No. No, I, I, I never told Ronnie that. And, and you know, as, as, as we all know now, Ronnie has also uh, given an affidavit and recanted his testimony. That was clearly just the coaching by the state to get their witnesses to talk about these drugs, you know what I mean? So they could, I guess, make me look bad, I guess, you know, but no. And like I said, you know, Ronnie is now recanted. Ed Hammond testified that Jamie confessed to him when they were together in Centralia Prison. He has since recanted an evidence not revealed to the defense before Jamie's trial proved that he received a deal in exchange for his testimony. You can listen to episode 11 for the full story of Ed Hammond. You testified that you never said to Ed Hammond that you had been in need of money for drugs the night of the murder. In fact, you stated, I deny that. That is a rumor that has been circulating around this town since the crime happened, and everybody has known that. They spent a lot of time questioning you about when you were on the road crew in Centralia as well. It's obvious that they were trying to create this window of time, much like they did with Tammy Snow from the grand jury. Well, I wasn't, you know, it's not like I was watching him every single second of the day, but no, he didn't go anywhere. I think that they were trying to create this window where you may have had access to Hammond. You stated you were at work, so you were unable to go to the morning and afternoon yards. And they went on to ask you if you worked seven days a week and and so on. Like, did you know, did you ever go to the yard? Was there any any opportunity? And there was some interesting testimony here where they questioned you. Isn't it also true that the residents of the East House, even if they didn't live in one of the units that wasn't supposed to go to the South Yard, could have nonetheless gone to the South Yard? And you said, I really, I really don't know. They had to get by a couple of guard towers and some buildings and maybe some fences. I would have to say it's unlikely. 
And they go into asking you if there were fence barriers. And you're like, I don't know. I didn't live in the East House. They're asking you questions that are kind of impossible for you to, to answer. You, you land up saying, I'm saying me and Ed Hammond didn't have contact in Centralia when on the yard, in the chow hall, in the commissary, in the gym. I was never aware that Ed Hammond was in Centralia until I read his statements in the Discovery. Is there anything about that testimony that you No, I, I think that's pretty, um, that's pretty spot on. I mean, I, I was on the road crew, so I went to work Monday through Friday. So I didn't, wasn't in the yard, you know, Monday through Fridays, either the morning or the afternoon. The weekend yards, yes, I, I could have went to the weekend yards, but this is one of the reasons that, you know, I had told my attorneys, prior to trial, we need to get the movement records, you know, we could have tracked Hammond's movements and my movements, he was only in Centralia for six weeks, so we could have tracked his movements and my movements for that six week period, and it would have shown that, you know, we were never together anywhere in, in the, you know, the Centralia Correctional Center, I never saw him, and, and now we know that Ed has given us an, an affidavit, and, and he's admitted, you know, that everything that I was testifying to on the stand was true. And what's really disgusting about that is the state attorney knew that she was hiding evidence about the deal that Hammond got to testify. So yeah, there's really nothing to add to it other than now we have an affidavit that absolutely cooperates what I was saying. Bruce Rowland testified that Jamie confessed to him when he was in prison when Jamie was on a court bench. They were in the same prison for less than two weeks. Rowland said that Jamie told him he was at a party at the Whitmers near the gas station, went to buy cigarettes, and decided he didn't want to pay for them. Rowland went on to testify that Jamie left the gas station, but went back later, shot the kid because he had a smart mouth, and took the money and cigarettes. We know now that Roland was in serious trouble and was facing an extended sentence in prison for felony DUIs. Roland was sentenced to less than five years for multiple felony DUI charges. You can listen to episode 12 for the full story of Bruce Roland. So you were also adamant that you never spoke to Bruce Roland. They kept trying to nail you down in the testimony that you were in segregation unit in reference to Roland. You countered by saying you didn't know what the unit was called, but y'all were. But you did say you were free to roam the building you were in. Did you think that gave them an opening to say Roland had access to you? I was always under the impression that you were locked in your cell and didn't have access. The cell block in Logan was an open cell block. You had a day room. You had a you know an area where they had like a pool table and a ping pong table and a, you know some chairs. They had a TV, you know, and then down this long hallway were the cells on both sides. We were locked in that cell block. So when I'm saying I have the ability to move around, I could move around in that cell block. I was there on a corporate. I wasn't in population with the population guys, which is what. Bruce Rowland was, he was a population guy. We we weren't with the population. We were we were separate from the population. So we didn't go to yard. We didn't go to the chow hall. We didn't leave that unit. 
for anything other than maybe to go to the healthcare unit, but we were by ourselves and we were separated. And that building that I was in also housed people that were in SAG. You know, segregation was like a multi it's like F House here. F House is a four gallery cell house. They've had SAG on one floor, then they've had guys that are on Ritz on another floor, and then they've had population on another floor. So you're separated. That's how it was. And, and, and I never saw him. Never saw him, Bruce. I, 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 ne- I never left the cell house. You know, I was in that pod, in that cell block the whole time. So he said, though, that he had access as a trustee to clean or something in that, to mop floors in that cell block. No, he never came into that cell block. He was a population guy. We were not in population. We were guys that were in that pod that I was in were, you know, on Ritz or whatever other designation they had. They were not population. So you're saying that he did not have access to come and clean as a as a trustee? He was not did not have access? To that not to us. He, not, not to that cell block that I was in, no. He did not have access to that cell block. And had my lawyers have, have done a little bit of investigation and some research, they would have been able to show that we were not Logan population. I was coming from Centralia. So I was kept in a cell block apart from the Logan population because... If you come there and you're you're not from that institution and something was to happen to you, then they're, they're liable for that. Dan Tanaz, a Vietnam veteran, was an acquaintance of Jamie's when he lived in Florida. They worked together. He testified that Jamie had told him he was involved in a robbery or something like that in Illinois and that Jamie had asked him what it was like to kill somebody. Tanaz has since given an affidavit clarifying his testimony stating that Jamie had stated that someone was accusing him of a robbery and that he never said anything about being involved in a murder. Tanaz also stated that the detectives told him that Jamie Snow had shot his father and had killed a young kid that worked at a gas station for a small amount of money, beer, and cigarettes. He stated he had no knowledge of any murder and that while he was waiting to testify, the police detective gave him a newspaper with the trial on the headline. We did not do an episode on Tanaz. The next person they talked about was Dan Tanaz. So he had testified, and we again, we did not review his testimony as well, but he testified that you told him you were involved in a robbery in Illinois. You did agree that you told Tanaz that you were a suspect in a shooting when you were sitting around drinking but it's really muddy. It's kind of like, well, maybe I did. I don't know. But then stated that he may have been mistaken. The state kept trying to say that you told him you were involved in a murder in Illinois. But actually, that's not what he testified to at all. There really wasn't much else to his testimony, except critically, Tanaz stated these conversations happened in the summer of 95, but you were still in prison at that time. Is that is that correct? Yeah. He's like Don Roberts. He, uh, he was given statements that, you know, these conversations or these things took place, you know, at a, at a time when I wasn't even in Florida. Do you feel like he lied or that he was 
mistaken because it seems like a little bit earlier earlier in the testimony he was talking about 97 and then he then he says 95 and he just he seems he doesn't seem like he's well, trying you know to... i don't know I, I i really honestly don't know i do know that uh that dan has, has now given us an affidavit and recanted his testimony i don't know why or or how they were able to get Dan to testify. I have no clue, but he has since given us an affidavit and recanted it, and that's what matters. Do you remember having a discussion with him about a robbery no. or a murder or shooting somebody? No. Or... What was interesting to me about his testimony is that he stated that you had asked him what was it like to kill somebody. And had you killed somebody, it seems like you would have known and not asked that question. True. You know, that, that's a good point. I mean, did I ever tell Dan that, you know, I was a suspect in a, in a homicide case in Illinois? It's, it's possible. You know, I, I might have. I mean, I knew it. I knew that I was a suspect. I mean, they forced me to stand in a lineup, so I knew it. I never said I did it. You know, I, I, I never said, hey, you know, I... You know, I committed this homicide. You know, I, I, I never said that. So did we ever have that sort of a conversation? I don't remember that specifically, but is it possible? Sure, it's possible. But I'm glad you pointed that out. That's that's a great point. I mean, uh, had I actually killed somebody before, I wouldn't have to ask Dan what it was like to kill somebody. So that's a, that's a great point. I'm glad you caught that. Jody Winkler testified that Jamie confessed to him at the beach when work was shut down due to rain. You can listen to episode 15 for the full story of Jody Winkler. Your testimony was that you never went to the beach with Jody Winkler and had a conversation with him about the Clark murder. And you said you felt sorry for him. What was behind that statement? Jody was a drug addict. You know, he was a, uh, he was a drug addict. And, uh, you know, I was introduced to him by somebody else you know, said he needed a job. I had my own little tree service thing going on, you know, and I needed I needed help, and I started working Jody. And he was a good worker. You know, I'd come out in the morning and he'd be there waiting on me, you know, and it took me about a week before I realized, you know, that this dude had a drug problem. You know, I came out one morning and he, he wasn't there. He was there every morning for like a week, you know, and he, he wasn't there. I'm like, you know, damn, you know, I'm gonna have to go pick him up. And uh, I went to take my garbage out and I walked in the alley and he was laying in the alley asleep, you know, so I, I woke him up and, and he came clean and told me what was going on. You know, he was really, really bad into drugs, you know, so I felt sorry for him. And I told him, I said, look, you know, I, this is what I'm going to do for you, man. I, I said, I'm, I'm going to give you $20 a day and I'm going to keep the rest of your pay. And I'm going to let you stay here. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to do all this, right? And then after 30 days, I'm going to give you all your money. And you're going to have to figure something out because I can't have that shit around me. You know, I had my kids around and uh, I couldn't have it, you know. And, and I felt sorry for it. And let me be very clear about something. I lived in Florida for, for quite a few years. And never did I say, hey, it's raining. Let's go to the beach. Never happened. Kevin Shaw was a former cellmate of Jamie's who came to live with him in Florida after he was released from prison. He testified that Jamie confessed to him, but now we know he received a federal downward departure in exchange for testifying against Jamie. You can listen to episode 15 for the full story of Kevin Shaw. 
They seem to go in depth about Investigator Casanoli's report about the interview with Kevin Shaw. And I know we're going back to this, but but it wasn't focused on Shaw. It was focused on Trees Unlimited and your business relationship with Dave Coley. What was that about? Because they went on and on about your relationship and did you own the place and did you not own the place and something about a chipper and it just seemed to kind of go off the rails. What Do you know what they were getting at? I have no idea. I really don't. I, I never understood that myself. I believe that uh, if that's the detective that, that we sent to talk to uh, Kevin, I mean, we just wanted to get Kevin on record before anybody with the ability to cut him some sort of a deal or, or, or give him, you know, something uh, got to him. And uh, it happened exactly the way that, that I knew it would. I mean, before the state attorneys showed up to interview Kevin. He knew nothing about the case, and he's emphatic, you know. Jamie never told me nothing about any murders. He wouldn't do anything like that. Give him a polygraph, so on and so forth. And as soon as uh, Charles Reinhardt and uh, Dan Katz, the witness whisperer, showed up, and all of a sudden, Kevin got a, a 50-page statement to give him, which, as we all know now, he got a minimum of eight years knocked off of a, a federal prison sentence in return for his testimony. Mary Burns was a correctional officer from McLean County and testified that Jamie told her when he was in county jail awaiting trial that he and Susan had committed the crime. You can listen to episode 17 for the full story of Mary Burns. You testified that you got along well with Mary Burns, the correctional officer in McLean County when you were waiting in the county, and that you may have talked about your flight, and you said later on on cross-examination that you, that you never talked about the case, but earlier in the beginning of your testimony, they asked what you said to her, and this was Riley or Pitzel, whoever. You said I was talking about a couple of different things and the conversation was flowing between one thing and the Clark. And I was trying to, I guess, explain to her why I thought I was a suspect. And I was relating to her something that, something else that had happened totally different than this case. And I, the only thing I can figure out is that she misunderstood exactly what I was talking about. I was not. I have never said that Susan was driving me anywhere. Susan Claycomb Powell has never driven me anywhere, and I do not know who committed this murder, and I would not tell her that. So there seems to be a little bit of discrepancy there. Here's, here's what I think, all right, and, and, and this is what I think. I, I don't think there was a uh, misunderstanding at all with Mary Burns. I don't think she misunderstood what I was talking about at all. I guess what, what I meant when I said we didn't talk about this case was was me denying, you know, it's, it's me saying that we did not talk about this case in, in the manner that she said we did. That never happened. And I guess I guess that's what I meant. You know, look, when you're on a on the stand being cross examined in a in a first degree murder case and it's a very intense situation, I mean I I wasn't being uh, deceitful. I just may have been uh, a 
little distracted by the the, uh, the questions, but the truth is, I mean, we we never had the conversation that she said we had. It, ne- it never happened, and, and I guess that's what I would say about it. It, it never happened, and, and had my attorneys done their job and went and talked to Demetrius Kreitz and Lindsey Caldwell and Darren Smart, the people that she claimed were present when I was making these statements, they would have been able to put them on the stand and they would have all testified that it never happened. Had they uh, talked to her immediate supervisor, Chris Salmon, who she claimed she told him about this conversation, he would have testified that it didn't happen. It wouldn't just be me, my word against Mary Burns. There would have been some cooperation to it. The question came, and it it was uh, one of Leslie's questions, because I think that we had said during the Mary Burns that you never said anything about it, and she she said, you know, we need to clarify that. So I'm looking at your second statement, and actually, it corroborates what you said when they were asking you on cross. You said, "Is it is my firm recollection." that we didn't discuss a case which I'm on trial for in the context that she has said. Listen, this this is this was the problem with with me having to take the stand because they had dangled the other case out there and had I never been a suspect in that case, had I never been arrested for that case, I would have never been a suspect in the Williamville homicide. You know, that's where all of the confusion and, every, you know, we, because we we probably should have. And in hindsight, I wish I would have. I should have just told the jury, you know what, I'm putting it all out on the table. This is why I'm a suspect in this case. And this is what happened with the Freedom Robbery. And this is what these people are talking about. They've got the two cases mixed up. They think, and as a matter of fact, one of the people that testified at the, the, the grand jury realized that when she was testifying in the grand jury that she had it wrong. She was thinking of the freedom robbery and, and not the Clark case. You know, so it was confusing. And uh, and the state used that to their advantage because they knew that we probably didn't want to bring it out. But in hindsight, we absolutely should have. You know, we absolutely should have. We should have cleared up all the discrepancies for, for the jury to, to consider. I think earlier on, you know, very early on during the podcast, that Leslie brought that out very well when she was talking about on the Q&A when they consistently, they replaced the word robbery with murder. And, and you know what? I'm, I'm glad she caught that because that's absolutely what was going on. And, and I, I look back on it now in hindsight. You know, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I wonder if the jury would not have found me more credible had I not just said, you know what, I don't have to tell you about this. I don't have to tell you about this because you know what, I'm going to tell you about it because I think it's the only way that you're going to come to the right decision. You need all the information, not just what the lawyers have decided and argued you can have. I think you need it all. So I'm going to give it to you, even if it, even if it's to my detriment, I'm going to give it to you because I think you need to know in order to come to the right the right decision. I mean, now that that's that's probably what we should have done. But Leslie was absolutely right. I mean, that's what they did. Because if we were bringing it out, you know, in trial, and then it, it was just out there, we could have produced 
the grand jury testimony for freedom and said, see, yes. this is what they're saying. This is right. what they're doing. Absolutely. Yes. You know, and it would have been very easy to produce documentation, you know, to show that they were replacing what they said about freedom with the Clark station. Absolutely. No, no doubt about it. That's, you're, you're, you're 100% correct. Tim Powell testified that his sister, Susan Powell, Jamie, and Tammy Snow stopped at Freedom Gas Station about three or four weeks before the Clark Station crime, and that Jamie got out and bought some beer and said he was going to rob the place. He said that they rode around by the Whitmers and that Jamie got out and talked to Brian Whitmer. We did not do an episode on Tim Powell. The last question I wanted to ask you about is Tim Powell. That was your co-defendant's brother. Now, we didn't go over him either. Tim Powell testified that a few weeks prior to Easter 1991 that you, Tim, Susan, and Tammy were riding around and stopped at several gas stations. And Tim Powell made it out like you were casing them. He also stated that you stopped by Brian Whitmer's and spoke with the, spoke with uh, Brian Whitmer. So both Tammy Snow and Susan Powell vehemently disputed this in their testimonies. What is your insight on Tim Powell? You know, I, I don't know. I, I, uh, I, you've just recently told me, I didn't even know this until just recently, like within the last month, that he had pending criminal charges. I did not know that. We, we did not know that at the time of trial. They did not turn that over. That's another one of the things that they they hid from us was the fact that Tim Powell had criminal charges pending. You know, he said I went, you know, that we went to Brian Whitmer's house. You know, that's why I put Brian Whitmer on the stand. And trust me, me and Brian Whitmer are not friends, and we've never been friends. And when I read that in his statement, I kind of laughed, you know, because I'm like, that's just laughable. I mean, I would never go to Brian Whitmer's house. You know, and Brian came in and he testified, no, never happened. So, I mean, I deny it it ever happened, and Tammy denies it ever happened, and, and Susan denies it ever happened, and Brian Whitford denies it ever happened, you know what I mean? I don't know who else I can get to come in and, and testify that these things didn't happen. I'm going to assume that, and, and I don't have any evidence to back this up, but I'm going to assume that perhaps the witness whisperer went to Tim and, and was like, we don't want Susan, we want Snow. You know, so if you can help us get him, you know, we're not worried about her. And and maybe that's why he did. I don't know. It could just be that it was a open season on deals in, in McLean County. He had a pending criminal case. And I don't know. Maybe you, I forget what you said, but I mean, did they dismiss his charges after she kept, after her trial? He had a police or, sentencing hearing on October 29th, 1999. And he pled guilty to resisting obstructing peace officer correction employee he had two counts of that and then uh, possession of drug paraphernalia which isn't you know that isn't too bad but he got uh, 12 months probation okay yeah. that's a relative slap on the wrist so you know mm -hmm. it could be that's what it was I don't know I mean like I said everybody that supposedly was involved in this ride and, you know, going to the Whitmer house and all that. I mean, everybody said it didn't happen. And, and 
trust me, Brian Whitmer was no friend of mine, so he wasn't testifying for me. He was just telling the truth. So. And, and you know, it's interesting that he popped up again. All of these people popped up, you know, in 1999, 1998. After they all arrest. just popped up. So nobody, not one person on this witness list was like in 1991, hey, uh, Jamie Snow was casing this place. He said yeah. he was going to rob a place. Where yeah. was he then? It didn't happen. It didn't happen. So, like I said, they, I'm surprised they didn't take an ad out in the paper and say, if you'll testify against Snow, we'll let you go. I think that's all it was. I mean, it was open season and everybody knew that if you needed a deal, if you were in trouble, Now's the time to come up with a story. And that's, and that's what happened. Had Frank and Pat have done their job and properly put forth the witness list and properly laid the foundation for these people, I, I may not have had to testify. I mean, we, we, we couldn't call Billy Hendricks and we couldn't call Mark Foster and we couldn't call Butchkowski and, and uh, all the people that would have rebutted Don Roberts and, and one of the things about Dan Tanaz was he named all these people who were supposedly there when we were having these conversations in Florida all of those people have said it didn't happen the way that he said it happened that that's I think defense work one on one I mean you uh, you interview these people and if they deny that you know these, these things took place then you you call them and you put them on the stand they didn't do that and I had no choice but to get up on the stand. And like I said, by that point in time, it was my word against everybody. You know, and that's a horrible, terrible strategy. In part two of episode 19, we heard Jamie reflect on just how the state got away with his wrongful conviction. Jamie tried to single-handedly combat the prosecution, but the defense's last-minute show of force was not enough for the jury especially after the closing arguments that came next. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. Want to join the Jamie Snow support team? Become a patron for as little as $1 a month. Just go to snowfiles.net and click on Be My Patron on Podbean. All donors will have our undying appreciation and acknowledgement on the show. The highest tier donors will be invited to host a QA segment. Funds are used to cover our administrative costs and to keep Jamie in the media. After Jamie took the stand and the defense rested, the prosecution took one more stab at it with their closing arguments. Prosecutor Tina Griffin recounted witness testimony with her own words and implications, with her own twist, to build a web of lies. Her convoluted narrative was so weak that if one witness was pulled, they'd all crash like a house of cards. We're going to show you that domino effect. That's next time on Snowfiles. <laughs>